0: Um, Hi, I'm uh, Hannah Riley bowles I'm uh, Research Director here at the Women in Public Policy Program. Welcome to our weekly uh, seminar. Um, I'm thrilled today to have an opportunity to introduce uh, Professor Kathleen Gerson, she's the Collegiate Professor of Sociology at New York University, and she's going to be talking about different ways of not having it all. Uh, work care and gender change in the new economy. Um, oh, sorry. We're thrilled. Um, <laughs> yeah. uh, Professor Gerson is a widely acclaimed uh, sociologist. She holds um, many, she's received many awards and holds many titles. She's um, uh, on the board of the Council of Contemporary Families. Was named a distinguished feminist lecturer on women and social change by sociologists. I'm actually just going to pause there because the paragraph goes on and on and on. But her recently, most recently, she's got this book called The Unfinished Revolution, Coming of Age in a New Era of Gender, Work, and Family. And I have to say that scholars of gender and family have just been a buzz about since it came out. It's been really um, profoundly effective thinking. And so I believe that Professor Gerson is going to talk a bit about that book before she sets up Um, her new project and so I won't take any more time away um, from our time with you so thank you all welcome. Uh,
1: I will try to speak fast Uh, I have I can speak fast but I also have a habit of perhaps speaking too long so I don't want that to happen because I really look forward to hearing from all of you and having a good interchange a one plug I can't help but making there is a new organization called uh, The Work Family Researchers Network, um, which I welcome you to join. It's interdisciplinary. It meets every two years in New York City, and I'm on the board of that. Uh, So that's the one plug. It's a brand new organization that I think speaks to all of the, the new issues that are emerging that we haven't yet been able to find kind of the institutional rubrics and the right language to deal with. Uh, let me know if you want to join i'm happy to t- I'm on the board i'm happy to tell you all about it it's very exciting thousands of people from all over the world by the way that's the other nice thing about it it's not american-centric it's globally centric gosh didn't expect to make that plug but <laughs> um, mostly i just want to thank you for being for being here and uh... hopefully i can get through this quickly enough to uh, Spark conversation. Oh, I guess one more thing. I, I didn't mean for the title to sound too depressing. <laughs> I, I want to say that I'm an optimist by political conviction and, uh, every, and how I see social change as a process of hopefully solving old problems and those inevitably create new ones. And so our job as social scientists and analysts and policy people, is to figure out what the, n- what the new problems are <clears throat> that have been created by a- earlier resolutions to the old ones, and I'm, I am optimistic. I'm also sort of an optimist by demographic uh, transitions, and I think the changes in the air are those that are uh, inevitable. And our challenge, especially those of you who are in public policy school, is to figure out how to identify those problems and then develop humanistic reactions to them. So uh, I hope by the time we get to the end, you'll see that it's not as pessimistic a idea as it sounds. It's simply a way of moving the discussion beyond this notion of the women and the social problems that they create by going to work to a much broader view of the kinds of things we're dealing with. So I've already taken up too much of my time. Here we go. So, see, I hit the wrong button. I hope that wasn't a, a Freudian slip <laughs> 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 to make it disappear. Okay. Very, very broadly, uh, can't we can't understand small social problems without putting them in a broad context. So, the context that I start with is the rise of the new economy, which. I which is just as fundamental in many ways as the industrial revolution that reshaped work and family life. So what are the structural underpinnings of this new system? First of all, the nature of work itself has been profoundly changed. Um, not just the predominance of high-tech jobs, in every walk of life. I mean, I interviewed a guy who worked, who's an artist, but what is he doing for a living? He's working at a real estate company developing websites. That's the level at which high-tech has entered the everyday workplace. And also service jobs, all the kinds of jobs that have revolved around the globalization and the and high-tech uh, transformation. Secondly, who works? And here obviously what we see is uh, a shrinking gap, gender gap in the participation and to the degree to which it's If not 50-50 these days, it goes back and forth, but there, I think we can see with small deviations, sometimes there are more women in the workplace than men, and sometimes more men, but basically the long-term trend is for equal gender participation. And thirdly, how is work organized? First of all, there are shifting locales. We've moved beyond rigid boundaries between home and work to really not quite knowing when we're at work and when we're at home uh, because time and the boundaries between time and space have utterly dissolved. The shifting geography of jobs and workers. So you'll see a little bit of this toward the end and how it's affecting uh, local conditions here. But job markets are now global, not local. But the problems that they create are very localized and very bi-local. And finally, and I think the thing I'm looking at even most deeply, the move from work trajectories that, at least among the middle class, we once thought of as systematic lockstep. You got you got sort of, you stepped onto, I don't want to call it a treadmill, but you stepped onto the conveyor belt, and it carried you along, uh, the mid-20th century model, especially of men's work, uh, which if not always the most predominant one, it was certainly the one we had in our minds and I want to really be clear here I don't just mean middle class jobs unionization created a very similar kind of sense of job trajectory and job security for uh, male, especially white working class jobs as well to what we now think of as disposable workers, I think disposable is not a great term but but I think the point is that the job and the work are much less closely aligned and it changes the nature of how workers need to think about their careers. So the changes are global but their consequences are local. Where are you in this position? Are you in the center versus the periphery? Being in the center used to be a good thing but it's increasingly a challenge because for all kinds of economic reasons workers in the periphery are less have less leverage, can demand less and, and receive less, and that changes what workers in the center can do. And finally, the work and family policy regime. Do we think about these changes as ones of individual reactions and and strategies to cope, or do we think about re- how do we rethink the collective safety nets and social supports that worked so well in the 20th century and for the old economy but no longer fit the needs of the new economy. <gasps> see, there I go again. Okay. So consequences for work and family or uh, connections and gender connections. So back to the U.S., which is my primary focus, but which I'm beginning to see is, as having traveled to Israel and Oslo both in the last several months are actually quite universal. We have, as I said, the erosion of job security and predictable work paths, both for working class unionized jobs and for middle class organizational career paths. Something else that fits with this but rarely gets discussed in the same overall debate is our changes in our families and personal lives. Uh, the rise of optional relationships that m- many, if not all, see as an expansion of choice. Of course, we do know there are many uh, groups, uh, especially in the heartland, who see this as a danger to moral uh, uh, solidarity. And the erosion of relationship security and predictable life paths. So just I want to just suggest that there's a parallel shift happening in our private lives. That just as our work trajectories have become more uncertain, uh, uh, more a kind of give and take, push and pull, backwards and forwards, so are our private lives. Uh, There's similarly no longer a predictable path through adulthood, through our families and personal choices. So what does this mean? It means that fundamentally the the decline in the gender bargain. The notion of both predictable work and predictable marriage made a gender bargain possible. Uh, People could assume that they were parts of a unit in which stable work would provide a household with support, and stable relationships meant that you could assume that the kinds of, of stability that your partner had would in fact accrue to you. That bargain, for better or worse, and I, whatever the drawbacks, I would think we need to think about all the rigidities of that system and what and the unintended consequences, not so positive, that it produced, that bargain is essentially over. Uh, as many have noted, we have the rise of breadwinner moms. According to the a Pew study, I don't want to go into the details. Forty percent of households with children uh, under eighteen um, are supported by breadwinner moms. That's either single mothers or mothers who earn more than their than the fathers. One third of married mothers earn more than than their partners, and two thirds are single mothers. So. All in all, this means that we have a decline of what was once called separate spheres. The daily blurring of of the spatial and temporal boundaries between home and work on a day-to-day basis, but I think even more profound, the life course shifts and, and the unpredictability of how work and family will affect us over time. So what does this mean? Well, these are, the law, these are the changes that have taken place in the lives of everyday workers. Uh, the problem, <laughs> the rub, is that our work and family institutions have been surprisingly resistant to change, Even not just resistant to change, and this continues to kind of blow my mind. A, a rational analysis would say, okay, they'll adapt. They have intensified the challenges rather than reduced them. So we have the persistence of what Joan Williams calls ideal worker norms uh, and structures at work. And in fact, I would argue from my interviews, those norms haven't just persisted, they've intensified. We've gone from 40-hour work weeks as being the standard to 50 and 60 and 70 and longer hour work weeks as the standard. On the other side, we've also got the intensification of parenting norms. Uh, Children, uh, we now assume and argue that, or at least the cultural norm, is that children need more attention than they once did. That in this uncertain world, where there's no longer a sort of guarantee of being able to transfer one's uh, advantages to the next generation, especially in the middle class, or to be able to assume that your children would do better than you in the working class. Uh, There's now so much anxiety around child rearing that just as we expect people to do more at work, we expect people to do more in the home. Oh, by the way, and I'm not just talking about child rearing because the same thing has happened with any kind of dependent care. Elderly care, any, any person who's somehow unable to support them. Uh, And we've had the erosion of the safety net that was built in the 20th century to help people, individuals and families, through these trouble spots. So what happens when you've got widespread, irreversible institutional shifts, but contradictory pressures to continue to act in the old ways only more so? And this is where my research comes in. Um, I see these cultural conflicts and contradictions in two ways. These are the new challenges we face, often because of positive social changes that have, have unintended negative consequences. And because we've had these institutional resistances that have not responded to these social changes. So we've got the greedy institutions of work and family. We've got the dilemmas that we as individuals feel about how to negotiate a damned if you do and damned if you don't situation. And we have the interpersonal tensions that arise when people try to create relationships in these, these contradictory uh, situations where no standard seems high enough to, to be able to Reach. So the popular debate on this um, has taken a really interesting turn. Uh, I, I, we shouldn't be surprised because we know it's easier to think of changes as li- unilinear trends uh, rather than as more nuanced, complex, contradictory shifts. But in this case, what's happened is we've got two major frames for thinking of this. The first is the end of the gender revolution. The answer to these problems, and we see it every day, is women are going back to work, uh, and men are resisting domestic equality. And so we plateaued, and perhaps we're going back to the good old days when the system seemed to work, at least for some people. But the opposite, yeah? opposed views about what is actually happening or what is what things want to be like I'll get to that. Okay. yeah yeah so, but what I'm presenting here is how I think these arguments have been portrayed. not just in the media by the way, but if you look at academic articles, you'll see some articles on the end of the gender revolution and then other articles on the rise of women and the decline of men, but never the Twain shall meet. So I'm not just trying to blame it on journalists who are just doing the best they can. To make sense of a complicated situation. But I do, or, or polit, po, I, I will put a little more responsibility on politicians, mainly because for them there's a political agenda. And that agenda usually means speaking to one group or the other rather than stepping back and seeing the whole thing. So, uh, so these are the main narratives. Uh, I, this is a narrative, by the way, that I am going to refute just to give you a preview. That's why I hope I'm not spending too long on the preview because this is the refutation. Uh, so then we've got the rise of women, the decline of men. Women are outpacing women in education, aspirations. Men are confused. We've got uh, The result is that we've got the decline of marriage. We've got moral decay, unmoored individualism. That's sort of the general narrative that of that. Just an aside. I didn't see any moral panic when men were outpacing women in education, (laughs) Uh, so I'm always a little worried when I see something like this treated as a bad news story rather than simply, oh, that's interesting, what's going on here? The point is both of these arguments stress unilinear change, so here's my response to that, and this is where I will go from here. I don't think we've got unilinear change. What we've got is a confusing situation that is contradictory. And what that produces for all of us on the ground are dilemmas, not trends. We are coping in all of our life stages, but especially young ad- younger cohorts who are coming of age and mm-hmm. in this period with dilemmas. Uh, What I mean by that, by the way, isn't just a personal agony. I mean a socially structured dilemma with no institutionalized resolutions. We haven't figured those out yet. We're really trying to figure it out on our own. So these dilemmas undermine received practices. We can't follow the old paths. Those are no longer possible. And they require innovative responses. Uh, but those responses inevitably create confusion and blowback what I call damned if you do and damned if you don't responses you go to work why aren't you at home you stay at home, why aren't you supporting the family you're a sensitive guy who wants to be involved with his family why aren't you taking your career seriously you take your career seriously, what's wrong with you you're a lousy father, that's what I mean by sort of damned if you do and damned if you don't choices and I I do believe this is the optimist in me it's, uh, I believe it's untenable in the long run for society uh, to work this way so I do believe there that this is where we are now and hopefully not where we're going so that's the question where are we going uh, what are the emerging strategies and how are they connected to gender and how do they reflect the rise of these consequences? Because the one good thing about this situation is that it doesn't just allow social change, it requires it. We can't go on indefinitely this way. we got to figure something out. Very briefly again, um, just a little preview. Uh, I always assume that books are hard to read, and there are a lot of them out there, so I'm not assuming that you've read my most recent book. Uh, And for those of you who have, forgive me for a little repetition, but this is really presented as a setup for where I want to go. So I recently was interested in how these children of the gender revolution have processed these changes. Um, This is just, I interviewed women and men, and mostly in their 20s, um, diverse class, ethnic, and racial backgrounds. And I wanted to know a number of things. First, how do they respond to their own families growing up? Because so much of the stereotyping is based on assuming that these children have suffered. And without going into any detail today, um, I found a very different story, Uh, a good news story there, by the way, uh, about how children have responded to these changes. Mostly in an optimistic, positive, "Wow, I've got options" kind of way, but also how they're negotiating their own transition to adulthood, having grown up in this period and having observed the struggles of their parents, um, and also, and finally, since these kids, kids, I shouldn't say kids, these grown-ups, I'm showing my own age here. Uh, were groping with their the tension between what kinds of ideals have they developed very different than earlier generations but what are their perceptions of the options they face so I found three options that tend to be perceived not that necessarily people are are following one is the neo-traditional I don't want to go spend too much time on this, but I would say the main twist here is that in this ideal type, this scenario, you're in a committed relationship. Both partners work, but there's still this notion of specialization. Who's responsible for what, which I think fits in with the notion, Arlie Hochschild's notion of the second shift. The second is what I call self-reliance, another strong cultural tradition in American society. Uh, although now, it's increasingly applied to women as well as men. I think that's the shift here. Uh, it's not just Clint Eastwood on his, you know, on his horse going into the town and saving it. It's, I don't know, Claudia Eastwood. Um, <laughs> on her horse with her babies by her side, Mm -hmm. taking care of everybody, Uh, without much help. And and the point here is that in this society, even in the context of a committed relationship, and this is the important thing, it's not like, oh, these people are all permanently single. It's that even in the context of a relationship, we think of ourselves as needing to be self-reliant. Anything can happen. That's this notion of uncertainty. And therefore, I'm I'm in this now, but I know at any moment things could change. I've got to be able to take care of myself. I think this is especially important for women who who weren't given uh, this particular worldview in earlier generations. And finally, gender flexible. From my perspective, the good news. I don't want to impose my values on you, but I will come out and say, you know, if I have to vote for, (laughs) if I have to vote for a future path, this would be it. Um, And gender flexibility, which is a little different, by the way, than gender equality. They're related, but they're not the same. means several things. First, it means you don't think of yourself as gendered in a rigid way you see yourself as being able to move back and forth to encompass all those things that you consider human Mm -hmm. rather than gendered, and that that means a, a, a blending of public and private. But it also means being in a relationship that's flexible, not necessarily in a rigid, you do this, I do that, you know, we count it all up, we make sure it's equal, blah, blah, blah. I mean in a much more flexible way. No, very few people want to live that way, and it and it's not possible in such an insecure world. It can mean we'll take turns. It can mean you know we're going to do what we have to do to make it work, regardless of uh, what the real, what the nature of the household is. Um, and it, it can mean simply being neutral about who does what. However since this is a whole new model, there are very vague notions about what equality can and should and, and is possible to me. Okay, quickly. This is, in, this is sort of the setup for what I want to tell you I think is happening next. When I talk to young people about their ideals and that's on the right hand side, what I find is that uh egalitarian, what I call egalitarian ideals here, but we could also call flexible, are overwhelmingly held by women and men alike. Women slightly more than men, but no question the, gap be, the gender gap is small. Women and men, and I think it can be argued, the society as, as a whole is moving toward a notion of Gender flexibility and gender equality as a social good. Uh, Whereas, Hmm? adversary, yeah. So, by egalitarian, you mean the gender flexibility that you just described. Right. And apparently, an overwhelming majority of the 120 people you interviewed. Yeah, a small group, granted, but I can give you survey data that backs me up (laughs) if need be. In other words, these findings reflect larger surveys, which are finding exactly the same things. Well, the, the ideal must have been it looks like having been achieved of gender Well, flexibility. let's go to the second. You set me up so perfectly. <laughs> <laughs> Take a look at the right. Uh, when I probe further, and this is what you don't get in surveys, is OK, so what do you think is possible how do you think things are really gonna happen, you get an enormous amount of skepticism about the difficulties of achieving this ideal. Uh, I can go into all the reasons, but you probably don't need to, because I'm sure you can list them in your head. What happens when when flexibility and, and equality seem out of the picture? Here it gets more complicated. I developed a notion, I think this is actually a new idea, I haven't seen anyone else write about it, so, of fallback positions. If, you, if the ideal proves unworkable, then what, what do you think you have to do? What do you think you will do? Ironically, despite this notion of women opting out and men holding on, I find that women stress self-reliance far more than men. Uh, because they are acutely aware that every they, if they allow themselves to depend on someone else, it's a dangerous place to be, and while they'd love to be able to share the bottom line, this is sort of like the bottom line, the bottom line is, i got to take care of myself and any children i might not men fall back on the traditional but I want to be clear, this isn't because, just because men are stuck in the past and holding on to privilege. I always find privilege a kind of unusual, strange word because we know it's a double edged sword. Um, it's because they're still under the sway, I don't think sway is the right word, I think under the pressure of the male breadwinner standard, which tells them if they cannot support a family, they're unmarriageable. That, that word has been used by the esteemed Bill Wilson, someone whom I respect enormously, who teaches at Harvard. But a man who cannot support his family, or at least hold a decent job, is, is out of the running in many ways. So it's understandable that for men, the fallback would be neo-traditional. Yes, I, a, and, it, and, and it's closed, by the way, in, in a very chivalrous idea, which is, Equality means I need, you have a choice and I, it would be wrong for me to force my partner to have to do something they didn't want to do, but that I don't have a choice. I've got to be able to be a breadwinner. So what this creates uh, in the context of this cultural intransigence is a gender gap, but not a gender gap in ideals a gender gap in the kinds of strategies that people are pursuing. Uh, quickly, because I wanted, to, I got, oh good, I have some time to get to the good stuff. Uh, so there's a clash, It's a, but it's not just a clash between women and men, it's a clash between ideals and the structural institutional avenues available to people to achieve those ideals. Uh, and that creates a gender gap. But it's a gender gap that's developed out of a set of larger structural conflicts and contradictions. So my question now, to get to my new stuff, which for me is more interesting at this point, is what the hell is happening out there? You know, It seems like such an irresolvable issue. How are people resolving it? To look into this, I, for better or worse, I had the fortune of being in California several years ago um, at the Institute for Advanced Studies in the Behavioral Sciences, and uh, was just overwhelmed by the degree to which the new economy, and on on its cutting edge, is kind of exists in almost a Weberian ideal form. And I threw myself into a bunch of interviews out there, which I'm now expanding into the Northeast. So uh, I want to make sure that these findings really are much more national. But what I have to report on today is what I've been able to do. Uh, So I'm looking at California's Silicon Valley and New York's what we call Silicon Alley as ground zeros for the new economy. What do I mean by that? I don't just mean people are in high-tech jobs, because that's not true. Actually, a a very small proportion of the workers in these areas are in high-tech jobs, but they're in an environment of the new economy, writ large, that high-tech jobs are on the cutting edge of. Uh, The decline of stable careers, the rise of fluid intimate, intimate partnerships, and the blurring of the time and space boundaries I mentioned before. So far, I've been able to do interviewing with almost 90 people. I'll be up to 150, I hope, by the time I'm done. This time, I looked at people at 35 to 45. Just as an aside, I thought I was going to start at 30, and I quickly realized that I was too young. One of the things that is happening in this uncertain world is there's increasing postponement of, the, of, of these life-demanding situations. Uh, which is fine given how much longer we're living and working. Uh, But uh, it was a random sample of people in diverse jobs and, uh, and diverse family types. So what did I find? Well, back to the discussion about the old versus the new. What I found are four emerging patterns. The first two are the dominant the second or the emerging the dominant patterns do fit with our current narratives about social change Uh, uh, reluctant neo-traditionals I'll explain why they're reluctant in a second Um, and people who were going it alone also reluctantly but I also found two emerging patterns what I would call the uneasy reversers and the uh, struggling or I might I've also called them the exhausted egalitarians. (laughs) So let's start with the neo-traditionals. These people, every bit as much as others, started out with the same ideals of equality. Uh, But economic pressures and job structures Mm. left them facing extremely time demanding jobs rather let me just give you two quick examples this is the this this could be the time-consuming part because I could go on forever uh, Kyra is someone who had had a very successful career uh, in fact more successful than her husband's but he had fi- found found a dream job uh, that that she that meant she had to give up her career to move with him in order for him to pursue a dream after many setbacks. Uh, they had a young child already that he had been the primary caretaker of before, uh, and they were expecting a second child. So when she lands in this new world, he finds himself working, I can't even begin to tell you, 90, uh, if there were 95 hours in a day, he'd be working them the phone would ring or the text message would go off at 3 in the morning and he'd be expected to respond to it. Uh, And she, every time she interviewed for a job, someone would look at her and say, well, you've got a child, you're another child on the way, you have excellent, you've done wonderful things in the past, but we need someone who's going to put in those hours needless to say, very frustrating for both of them, because he'd like to be home more and she'd like to be working. Tim is kind of the mirror image of this. His wife, by the way, is a physician, but had decided, in order to have a family, to cut back to four hours a day, I'm sorry, four hours a day, four days a week, not four hours a day, Mm -hmm. Uh temporarily. Uh, And when Tim approaches his new boss, his uh, sorry, his boss w- with the new child. The boss said, I think as I mentioned to you before, hey, that's great, but I can hire someone in, in, in um, Russia or India who work for a third of what I'm paying you. So you can do this, but you take your chances. So what's the result? Uh, do you choose between economic security or time with your family and and your relationship. Uh, the result is that mothers are left by default. The fathers are frustrated by their lack of family time, and I would say also tension in the marriage itself, uh, not because this is what they wanted, but because the institutional incentives gave them very little choice. How do these people compare with the can't be dunners? These, t- these people also hope for egalitarian partnerships. Um, but for reasons of either job or relationship insecurities were left on their own. In many ways this is a story that's different for men and for women as most of them are. Uh, Michelle for example found herself in a long term relationship and an unplanned pregnancy. She had risen to the top of a non-profit organization which she loved running but her partner didn't want a child and she had to decide either to have this child on her own or have no child at all. She did decide to do it on her own but in doing so she, she knew she would have to give up this position of authority at the top of the heap in order to take a job that was less demanding and more secure because nonprofit agencies, you know, can come, ha- have their ups and downs. Uh, not that she has any regrets, but no sense, but, but clearly made many trade-offs. Jason, on the other hand, uh, experienced a series of job setbacks. Mm-hmm. Just went from one startup, in his case, to another, all of whom failed, uh, and, left a- and was left with very little, uh, to go for. Um, this contributed to a series of uh, ins- unstable relationships as well. Now he has a sense that because he can't find secure work, he literally has no right to a family. He sits daily, by the way, it's another story, uh, in a coffee house lined with what looked like desks, almost like a factory of the future, where people are spending their hours typing into their computers. I have no idea what they're doing, you know, but something that hopefully will lead them to a job and they don't know what it will be. Um, and that becomes, in a way, his substitute for the life that he hasn't, doesn't have outside of this space. So the result for these people is that jobs, on the one hand, for Jason, and personal networks of help, which Michelle turned to, offset the difficulties of being alone. But offsetting is not the same as resolve is reaching the ideals that you aimed for in the first place. Trading places. Uh, (coughs) Surprising number of people that we don't talk about had opted who wanted for equality found instead that they were building relationships and work family strategies based on the reliance of a woman's paycheck and the hope for some payoff in the husband's. Dolores really interesting story. Uh, high school educated tr- never went to college but went, moved moved up through a series of what we would call old economy jobs, administrative work, secretarial work, but old economy jobs in new organizational settings. So that finally, one of those small companies that she worked for hit it big. So instead, she found herself going from being an administrator to running a section of a major, uh, a major company. Uh, Oh, gosh, am I doing the wrong one? Uh, So, but her, uh, on the other hand, she's with a partner who's hitting setbacks right and left. Uh, He can't find steady work in the same insecure environment that she has, in some sense lucked into. And as a result of this, steady and growing resentment for both of them at home. Adam, interestingly, again, his wife is in the old, what we would call the old economy, an administrative assistant, pulling down a good steady job, a good income, but no great, you know, hope for the future, but it keeps the family going, while he has these dreams of making it big through freelancing. So he's been bringing in virtually no money And and becomes the primary caretaker as a result of this unexpected, you know, it wasn't planned that way. Uh, And while he very much hopes to quote-unquote make it big, there are no guarantees. The chances are it it won't. Uh, And he worries about holding his own. So the women chafe under the breadwinner burden, and the men worry about achieving the breadwinner standard. Final one. I don't I'm not sure how much time until I until the top of the hour. So oh hour. good, I've got a half an hour. Yay, we can talk about this half for a while. Great. Um, okay, so here's the good news. <laughs> and I don't want to make it sound like bad news, but we should never ever presume that any pattern is, you know, problem free or that other patterns don't have their payoffs. Not trying to say that some patterns are better than others. What I want to show is that each pattern is uh, a a good faith, but an ultimately inadequate response to the lack of institutional supports that people need. Uh, So Carmen, uh, these are committed partners. Both of them have full-time jobs. and Carmen is one of these, another person who started out in the old economy, very little education, uh, but no time for childbearing, um, as she ho- hoped that all this work would pay off. Um, ultimately, things did pay off, and the company that the small company she worked for, Uh, grew to the point that she uh, was um, close to the top of the organization. Despite the lack of academic credentials, she had the social skills and the the wherewithal to push herself. Uh, Her husband, again, she's a Latino, her husband is a contractor. Uh, An old economy job, uh, one with its ups and downs, however, um... but also doing just fine but the bottom line is between the in um, unpredictability of her work and the unpredictability of his work and the time demands of both of them children never fit in she's responded to that by becoming the the solace and the place to come for all of her many nieces and nephews who. Who have problems? Uh, her extended network has not. Uh, her, rel- her extended uh, family network has not been so fortunate, and so she, her, she and her spouse have sort of become the place to go to to recover from drug addiction, from school dropouts, from unplanned pregnancies. She, they, in a sense, have become the parents for other people's children, as they juggle their own work. Uh, Danny and his wife uh, both of them and financial services by the way are relentlessly committed to equality to the point that they sh- each of them takes half time every day to be at home with their children because back to my earlier point they're also relentlessly committed to being full time parents uh, they do not they are uncomfortable turning to networks of support, paid or unpaid, to care for their children. And so their response to this notion that only parents can do the best job is to somehow try to really do it all, even though they're both out there hustling every day just to try to keep food on the table. Um, They're struggling about whether they can possibly have a second child. And if they do that, what will that require in terms of a shake-up of their egalitarian partnership and having to let go of these beliefs of letting some others help them rear their children? Um, and Alex, uh, who's also been quite successful and is with a partner who is as well, uh, but their response is, forget about it. We can't. Do be good parents in this context it's too unpredictable so these are the result of this is that yes one could say I think that that they have established different ways of being equal but the trade off here is either exhaustion on the one hand constant scrambling never knowing how, how one can sustain this relationship Versus, okay, forget it. Kids are out of the picture. Damn. Just very quickly, trying to pull this all together. So, how do you explain these divergent strategies? You could say, okay, these are nice stories. These are people doing their best, fine. But what I want to point out, what holds all of these stories together? and how to interpret them in a way that moves us forward. And the first thing I would say is that neither gender nor personal preferences explain these strategies. And this is where I will take issue with the economists, who tend to argue that what people do is what they want. I think we always need to keep in mind that what people do is what, what the best they can do under the circumstances. It doesn't mean they're achieving what they want. And over time, they hope that they either can achieve what they want or they can simply force themselves to not want the things they once thought they did. The second is the gender doesn't explain these strategies. This is not about women either having it or not having it all. These are about the universal human desires, to have an integrated life and the difficulty that men and women alike are having in creating that. Their strategies are different, but the challenges they face are the same. Let's not confuse their reactions to those dilemmas with the fact that the dilemmas don't exist for all of them. So what does explain it? First, access or the lack of access to secure work when work becomes insecure, it produces excessive anxiety about how much one has to work and excessive anxiety if one cannot get their foot in the door. The second is that it, ex- it results from the access or lack of access to a re- ongoing relationship, but that too is related to work options. As work trajectory shifted, relationships felt the pressure and it spelt over into their relationships finally it reflects the access of your partner You even if you think you can control your own life you can't control the constraints facing your partner and if you're in a relationship where that matters you're not going to simply deny the, those constraints Uh, and so that means that it's not just finding that flexible balance for yourself it means hoping to be able to coordinate that with others in the society we're not alone in this I would even expand that beyond the couple because it's really about the group it's really about the community Uh, when workplaces are organized more flexibly um, when, when communities have social supports, that kind of flexibility feeds back into giving, other, giving ordinary individuals more flexibility. Without that, all of these strategies require significant trade-offs. Um, okay, you can say, so what? Big deal. This is life. We got to live with it. Life is hard. I agree with that. Uh, Freud once said, however, about that the work of therapy was to convert abject, su- abject misery into ordinary human suffering. <laughs> and she's an optimist? Right. Exactly. Exactly. So I would say the job of, of social policy is exactly the same. You can't, none of us can take away, being human is a gift and a challenge, and there will always be challenges. I think the job of social policy, however, is to transform those challenges from individual ones and not make them institutional and social ones. We can remove the unnecessary challenges people face and leave them to ponder the more universal aspects of being human. So what does that mean? In the context of this uncertainty and conflict, which is irreversible, can try to wish we could go back, but I've never interviewed one person in all my decades and hundreds, oh God, maybe thousands of interviews. I've never interviewed one person who said the answer was to go back to the way things used to be. People do perceive things have gotten better. It's widespread. The erosion of job security is here to stay. Uh, And for men, that means a redefinition of what it means to be a man in this context. The erosion of marriage security is here, to, is here to stay. And that means women can no longer either emotionally or rationally define their lives in, around those terms. And work care conflicts are here to stay, although they take different forms for everyone. So I would argue that the focus on having it all is misleading and even, I'll go so far as to say, is dangerous. Why? It obscures the institutional roots of these, of individual, what are often perceived as individual problems. These are universal dilemmas, and I want to stress, they are class, uh, they span the classes. Often this frame implies that having it all is a selfish, unrealistic women's problem, and also, by the way, a middle class problem. It's not. It's everybody's problem. And I think thinking politically, that's the way we need to frame it uh, so that it doesn't get ghettoized as kind of an ephemeral, and why should we care about that when people are you know, s- starving in some part of the world? And it intensifies the insecurities and conflicts of systematic change rather than helping us confront the real challenges of change. So about to shut up my last slide. This is the optimistic part. (laughs) I guess. Uh, So we have, I think, political challenges and policy options. I'd love to hear what you have to say about the policy options, because you're the experts on that, and I'm not necessarily so creative. The political challenges, though, I also have to be confronted. We've got to get beyond this debate that these changes represent irreversible moral decline and all we have to do is make better people with better values who will act better there's nothing wrong with people's values people's values are actually really impressive Uh, we're not experiencing moral decline we're experiencing fundamental social and economic changes part of that is we have to just go back to the separate spheres model that worked Ha ha ha, and uh, rather than seeking gender equality. Again, whether, whatever your feelings may be about that model, it's a goner. It ain't coming back. It was a temporary result of a very temporary period in history when um, academic, uh, emotion, academic uh, economic affluence. Uh, allowed for something for better or worse and made some people happy and left other people frustrated. Um, And that means we also need to shift the discussion from individual dilemmas that we have to solve to institutional restructurings that will make the dilemmas themselves less severe. Um, What are those? New avenues to integrate work and family. Off the top of my head, I do think we need to think about what do we mean by working time? Something that, you know, the 40-hour work week laws were really important when most people were wage workers who worked in factories. Got to really rethink what it means to set limits on working time in a, a technological age. Flexible work paths, that the lockstep career is over, how do we help people manage the movement in and out of the workplace and in and out of different kinds of jobs. Uh, And economic protections during those periods when those transitions have to be made. And also clearly to to the deprivatization of care. Care is a collective... Responsibility. It dep- social society, res- healthy societies, depend on caring for the next generation. And there are many countries that, you know, we can all name that have done a much better job of that. I don't. I think the U.S. is maybe down there with three or four of the le- countries that you would least want to identify with as having no uh, parental leave and no child care systems. I mean, we are truly outliers in the world community, not just the affluent world community, the world community at large. And gender equal options for all of these things. I could go on and on about what's happened uh, in Norway and other Scandinavian countries when fathers and mothers were given use-it-or-lose-it parental leave policies, which meant fathers had to either take them or lose them. The most interesting thing, by the way, isn't that fathers took them, which is interesting. It's that the fathers who diff- didn't take them became stigmatized rather than the fathers who did. So social policy can have cultural spillover that's really important. This is just my kind of call to arms. Why is social policy key? Uh, because the t- these changes are inexorable, inexorable. Ignoring them will not make them go away. Um, because without these policies, we will continue to have a patchwork quilt of inadequate strategies, um, which people have to work out on their own, and inevitably end up blaming themselves for conditions beyond their control. But I think, you know, most of all, because it's not just individuals who need these realignments, it's that Freud once said, a healthy person is someone who can love and work. Well, I think a healthy society is, uh, is a society in which everyone is allowed to integrate love and work. I'll stop there. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yes, questions? Good. Uh, I'll very move interesting. back
0: talk a little bit about, um, from a policy perspective, in particular the the neo-traditionalist and the sort of reluctant egalitarians. So it sounds like they're not outsourcing childcare. Is that because (laughs) they are, there's a lack of institutional support? Either they can't pay for it, or there's just nothing there, or do they choose not to do that? Uh, I would
1: like to say it was just the farmer, that it was the lack of of, um, the other alternatives, and to a certain extent that's absolutely true, and the alternatives are extremely expensive, I mean there's a huge trade off between uh, quality of care and cost of care, and until we make quality care affordable that's going to be huge. But I don't want to kind of take the easy way out and say it's only that. Because I think we really have to start to address this notion of intensive parenting that somehow parents are just inherently better. I mean, what occupation in the world would you say that everybody is inherently qualified to do the best? Why can't we just say? Why... Why do we have to all pretend that we're such great parents at every, you know, why can't we just say, look, this is, I'm not the best at this. I I can delegate some of that. I mean, I'm more than willing to say, I'm a, I was a much better parent when my children got older, and I want my child, I don't mean to exaggerate. (laughs) And what made me a good parent when my child was a baby was being able to share it with so many other people. Oh, my God, I shudder to think Mm -hmm. what would have happened to her. Uh, But we've got to get over, women in particular, but increasingly men, this notion that somehow there's some social stigma attached to saying it's good to to share these, these important life tasks with people who are trained to do it and good at it. On that, on that bay. I'm wondering how many um, in your sample lived near their families. I, I know a lot of the 20 something, 30 something are living farther away from their parents mm-hmm. or their extended family, I'm wondering how that played out in, in Well, actually, one of the really interesting things between comparing New York with the Bay Area is, the, are the geographic differences. One of the things I did notice in the Bay Area, I, I grew up there, and then I've been in New York, and I went back, and I back with a whole new view, (laughs) was how, not just how spread out things are, but the lack of a public space. Mm -hmm. That is, you have work, and then you have your home, and there's very little in the way of, uh, you know, in some of our suburban communities, of public spaces where people come and go and hang out. Uh, Relatives, uh, nannies, friends—you know—New York is full of that. So there are pl- there are child-friendly places that people can go. And one of the things I found in California was there are very few of those. Um, and if, uh, some people had made strategic decisions decisions to move near their relatives in order to make this possible. And others, as I pointed out in my one example, had actually made strategic decisions to become those caretakers. So when I use the word, and I explicitly use the word care rather than child rearing, because I do think this is a care issue. Uh, and it isn't just about whether you have kids or not. Uh, s- but the point I think is that that will work for those who actually want to be with their families and trust their families. Personally, I was, Much happier having other people I could, belong to. I could pay to take care of my my child because I didn't uh, I didn't feel that my family members were the best caretakers. I mean, I think that's kind of a strange notion as as well that people do hold on to. Uh, But the bottom line is, it's just not enough. It's not sufficient. We can't with all the other. Forces impinging on us in terms of the kind of jobs we take and the kind of lives we make, to say, oh, well, this lot can be taken up by our families is just, it'll work for some people, but as a, as a social policy, it just can't work going forward. Yeah. I don't know how, should I do this? Maybe someone else should do the calling on because because, yeah. okay, Simply, I don't want to be unfair, and there's a tendency to <laughs> look in some directions and not yeah. others. Yeah, thank you, Hannah. So I think one area where economists and sociologists are quite aligned is I think what you were also pointing out the time, the time commitments at home and at work, are maybe the last chapter for us to close. And not even Norway or Scandinavian countries have been able to do that. With the interesting relationship that with increase in part time work, uh, in, uh, women's participation in the workforce increases, but it's negatively correlated oh, with absolutely. women's uh, participation in leadership positions. I know. Right? So Thank you for raising so that issue. That's, and I don't have an answer to it, but I think that's where we are. I think we need to start living. talking about that. I, I have done some other res- cross-national research with my colleague, Jerry Jacobs. and I, I, One example, the Netherlands is always held up as, isn't this great to have such a short work week? Guess why? Because women work part-time. It's a pure averaging out of of women's and men's work. No, that's not going to work. I agree with you. Uh, Jerry and I used to fight about fights to a work debate. Um, you know, he would say, "I'm trying to figure out how people, you know, can work less," and I'm saying, "No, I'm trying to figure out how we can provide support so people can work more." And I think it that was a gender thing because. Um, if you don't lower the amount of time it's expected for extremely successful leaders, mostly who are men, to work, then you're left with women working, but working far less time, and then you've got this insidious feedback loop. Um, So I do think working time is a r- sort of a very, we have to be really careful when we talk about that. Um, when In that research, by the way, what we found was that people who were putting in 50 or more hours a week, uh, women and men, this is what I want to stress, underline the men part, wanted their ideal was a 35 to 40 hour work week. And People who are putting in less than thir- 30 or less than 30 hours a week, women and men, their ideal was a 35 to 40 hour work week. So, in some sense, if we could gain a hold of that, we could also, I think, not only uh, attack the gender divide, but the class divide. Because the other really pernicious thing that's happened that I didn't discuss here is because salaried workers don't have to get paid extra all the hours. And wage workers do. I do think there's an increasing incentive, and I don't blame employers. Please don't get me wrong. They're working in a highly competitive global world where they're just trying to keep their businesses alive and, and keep their employees with jobs. But there is this pernicious incentive to get as much work as you can out of your salaried workers and as little work as you can out of your wage workers. And so what that's what I meant when I said we're all facing these dilemmas, but they don't take the same shape in the same groups. But I do think if we thought of it from a social policy perspective and said these rules should apply to everybody. Let's not separate let's not bifurcate the labor force of the women and men professionals and non-professionals I think if we set a set of standards for everybody it would help uh, tackle that problem of overwork for some groups and underwork for others which is connected to how high you can go and or not go I mean uh, autobiographically you probably I, I, I'm, I'm at I'm, I've all At that stage in my life where I've got a child who's turning 30, and that's her dilemma. Does she work her butt off night and day to get where she wants to go, which is to a position of influence? And that, by the way, is what her employers tell her. If if you're here every night at 9 o'clock, and you show up every morning at, at 7, you'll go straight to the top. Yeah, but yikes. You know, and I mean that's not a pleasant lifestyle for uh, anyone. But imagine someone contemplating that this is their time time to build a family, and it doesn't just apply. Yes, so I I, I agree with you. We have to. I think one of the benefits of lowering the working time for people who really do aspire to become leaders is it will help people who across the class and.
0: I wanted to kind of just piggyback on that discussion of your daughter's
1: experience in the workplace because the one thing that I, and it goes, ties in with the child care and rearing uh, component is at least with among my friends when we discuss this sort of topic of
0: uh, child care, our concern is that if you're working these incredibly long hours. You're going to be putting your child in the care of someone else, and at some point it's a little concerning because
1: when does child care end and child rearing begin and in terms of the amount of hours you're spending with the child in terms of imparting values, and so at least for me some of my concern of like why I would want to you know at least have a lot more of a role in caring for my children or at least having my
0: family members involved is that I have a sense of my own values and what my family members values are and that those would be imparted so I just how do you kind of bridge that when dealing with child care because I think that's one of my hesitations with it because I just feel like I don't want some stranger well
1: you know I care. have a person that is such a it's that's what everyone says I mean that's and, and I sympathize utterly. I actually have a really simple re- reaction, which, which I've never... I, I can point to all the statistics which show that children who are cared for in various ways actually end up essentially the same in adulthood. And it's very hard to see the long-term effects. That doesn't take away from your concern about the short-term effects. But I do have a simple answer. I, uh, from my own experience, and actually from the way I was raised, because um, I did have a, ki- I, I was a child of the '50s. We uh, would have thought, hey, you know, your mom was around. I never saw my mom; <laughs> she was so busy doing volunteer work. And there's actually been a lot of research. I don't know if you know Susan the Yankees' work, which take a look at it, which she shows that parents today are actually spending more time with their children than parents were in the 1950s, So because they're overcompensating, um, and, and they're letting go of housework, and, and those kids in the 50s were probably sitting in front of the television set, so that's another set of values to worry about, but as far as values go, I, children know who their parents are. And just because they're in a range of other environments, they're perfect. And this I can tell you from my research. Uh, I didn't talk about the first half of the book on the unfinished revolution, but it was really about this. It was about what was, tell me what your trajectories were growing up in, in these different kinds of families. Children know who their parents are. They don't They don't somehow get confused that their parents and their caretakers (coughs) are the same people. They know who is setting the rules. Uh, And if if you have faith in your caretaker, also children get, it's a socializing experience to be out there, learning about other people's cultures and other people's values it doesn't mean they're going to take those values over they know who they're really ultimately speaking to but there's a lot to be learned from that so i would say it's all about equality all the research on this shows it's not about who raises your children or who cares for your children and even in the extreme conditions you're still with your child more than anybody else. It's about the quality of that care. Are, do they feel loved? Do they feel cared for? That, yeah. Yeah.
0: that's a profound note to leave us on. You <laughs> okay. raised a lot of really deep <laughs> okay. issues. Thank you very very much. <clears throat> very similar, <clears throat> very similar the talk, that I'm sure is, is t- uh, you know hitting all of us at multiple levels, oh, intellectual wow. and deeply personal. Uh, next week we've got Julia Lee as our presenter. She's going to talk about gender and moral decision making. So I hope you'll come Ooh, back. For I want to hear that. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you again very That was great. That was fascinating.